Good morning, Calvary Napa. Good morning, everyone that's online. It is so amazing to see you all from this vantage point again. I may have shed a tear in the back, but that's between me and the Lord. Um, <laughs> this is amazing. So we're going to go ahead and pray before we get started today, if you all will with me. Father, thank you that you have allowed us to gather in this place, God. As this world descends into darkness, Lord, the light of your glory and the light of your gospel shines brighter and brighter. God, we thank you that you are an unstoppable, mighty, and powerful God, Lord, and that we are only here by your hand and by your power. I pray, Father, for your saints here and across the world, Lord, that as we look around and see what's going on, Father, that we would be strengthened and encouraged by your Spirit, God, that you would remind us of who you are, God, that you are working in our lives and in this world, God, and you're building a church for your glory and for your Son. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I ask that you'll bless the teaching today, Father, as Pastor Rob teaches us, God, that you will speak through him mighty and powerfully. Father, that you'd prepare our hearts now to hear from you, to receive your word, God, and to be changed by it. We thank you, Father, for your great generosity, Lord. You gave your one and only Son on behalf of a lost and rebellious people. And I thank you for the generosity of these people, Father, as they come to gather, to give to you, Father, to the work that you're doing. Lord, may you bless our offering and our time of worship today. We thank you in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, then let me hear you praise him. Praise the Lord. Praise, praise him. All right. I'm so glad to see you all. I love you dearly, and I love to see your faces. Amen. 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 All right. Well, we are in, back in Romans. We've been out of Romans for about six months now. And so we're going to do some review today and next week. We're going to just an uh, overview of some of what we've already covered, and then we'll pick back up in chapter 13, not this coming Sunday, but the following. And I'm excited to do this. Uh, the book of Romans, it's, it's glorious. It truly is. And I think uh, someone rightly called it the, the center jewel and the crown of the New Testament. There's just no other book like it in the New Testament. And the way that Paul lays it out systematically, it truly is a gospel masterpiece, a gospel masterpiece. So that's what I've titled today's message. So this is part one. Next week, we'll do part two. And we're just going to be working our way through really the outline that is built into this, this book, into this text. And so what we have when you look at the book of Romans in the first three chapters you have the, the depravity of man, the, the sin nature of men and women, of humanity. Um, it is real, it is deep, and it leaves us in a very hopeless and helpless place. But then the good news of the gospel is introduced uh, towards the end of chapter 3, and then as we move into chapter 4, we, we see justification, and that is when we are declared innocent. We are declared guiltless. We are declared righteous. God makes us that way in his son. And then after that, we get into the reconciliation that is ours in Christ. In chapter 5, it talks about how we are now at peace with God. Through justification, we have been reconciled. And then as you get into chapters 6 and 7, we start to talk about sanctification, how we are growing in godliness. We are who God says we are. We are uh, complete. We are whole. We are new in Him. But there's also this process of growing outwardly, looking more and more like Jesus. And so as you get into the beginning of chapter 8, we see that we have this union with Christ, that we are united with Him and that He dwells within us. And then you get a little deeper into chapter 8. And you're going to see that we are adopted into God's family by His Spirit. And then towards the end of chapter 8, we begin to look at election, God's choosing. And we see that through chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then as you get into chapter 12, it is application. How then shall we live? 
in light of all that we see in chapters 1 through 11, that will affect the way that we live our lives. See, the problem is that some people start in chapter 12. They just think, I need to live a certain kind of way. But the reality is, first, you must see the glory of God. You must be changed by him from the inside out. You must gaze upon his beauty, and that will change you. And then that will affect the way that we live our lives. And so that is why the book is laid out the way that it is. First, we must see who God is and what God has done. And then towards the end, we begin to look at how then shall we live. And so that's just a flyover of the book of Romans. Today, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 1. I understand if you don't have your Bibles, the last several messages have been topicals, and it's just been a a barrage of Scripture, but I'm going to ask you to start bringing your Bible. We're getting back into the book of Romans, and uh, you're going to need to be able to follow along with us as we do that. So... Romans chapter 1, chapters 1 through 3, I've titled The Corrupt Nature of Man and the Good News of the Gospel. The Corrupt Nature of Humanity and the Good News of the Gospel. That's what we'll see in these first three chapters. So in chapter 1, in verse 16, Paul introduces us to the power of the gospel. And this is really the the theme verse of the whole book right here. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. This word for ashamed here, it's, it's kind of like to be conned and to find out that somebody got you, you know, they hustled you, or that you were let down and you really trusted somebody in a, in a very big way and then they, they let you down and then you feel kind of ashamed, kind of ashamed that you got taken, Right? Um, I remember years ago, there was a guy, very, very bright young man, and uh, he got a plan that he was going to build a, a dinosaur uh, theme park, and he was going to do elect- electronic dinosaurs and, and the whole nine, and so he, he asked his uh, parents if they would fund the thing, and so they sank their whole life savings into this thing, and it just totally flopped. It never even opened. I just remember for years after that, the, I think the shame that the guy felt and the weight that he felt for, for taking that risk and, and ultimately losing his, his parents' uh, life savings. Well, let me, let me say this. When it comes to the gospel, that's something that you will never regret having trusted in. That's something that you will never be ashamed for having put your trust in, not in this life or the next life. When you stand before God... When it's all said and done and you have passed from this life to the next and you stand before God, you can say, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel for truly it is the power of God and you will never be let down. Amen. Amen. And that was the confidence that Paul had in the gospel. It is the very power of God. That is what it takes to bring a dead sinner to life. Nothing less than the power of God. And he says that it is God's righteousness revealed. The gospel is God's righteousness revealed. That is to say that it it reveals to us that there is indeed a holy and a righteous God to whom we have to give an account. But the good news is, is that God gives us his righteousness. So we stand before him clothed not in our own works and righteousness, which we have none. Instead, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so it is based on that righteousness that we are made whole. And that's really the theme of this book. It's God's righteousness. God is righteous, and God gives his righteousness to those who trust in him by faith. That is the theme of the whole book right there. It comes up over and over, and we'll be seeing that as we move through. For he says here that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. You will be made alive through faith. 
When you put your trust in Christ, you are born again and you shall live. But then you will live your life continually in faith. God would have us to be habitual faith steppers, always living by faith, always looking to the Lord, always stepping out, trusting in him. We are made alive by faith and we continually live by faith for the just shall live by faith. And so there Paul sets this thing up. There's the theme. Now, conversely, the wicked, they do not. The wicked do not live by faith. The wicked reject the truth of God. And so Paul's going to now give us a picture of what that looks like. He's going to begin to talk about pagan idolatry, people that would worship other things, lesser things, grotesque idols. Now, Paul's writing from Corinth right now, and we know what, a, what kind of a place Corinth was. And so I have no doubt that what he is talking about is something that he's been seeing and has vexed his righteous soul. And so Paul's going to start by describing these idolatrous people in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So just as the righteousness have, of God has been revealed from heaven in the gospel, so has the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And you may remember that I did a, a standalone message on this very thing, and I dealt with the fact that because God is a, a righteous God, because he is a holy God, it necessitates that he must be a wrathful God. Could you imagine that? When you look out in the world that we live and you see the atrocities that are here, do you think that that does not affect the heart of God? Absolutely it does. Because he is truly holy and just, therefore he is also a God of wrath. And therein lies the problem. God is a, a just God, a wrathful God, and mankind has rejected him. Mankind has suppressed by nature, the truth of God. So this idea when it, when it says that what, what, what knowledge they did have of God, and they had plenty of it, we'll talk about that in a moment, what did they do with it? They suppressed it. The idea there is imagine that you're in a swimming pool and you've got a balloon, right? And you push it down below the water, what's going to happen? It's going to pop back up. But you could, you could hold that down. You could suppress it under the water. Now imagine you had five, ten balloons, and you're trying to hold all these balloons down, right? It gets a lot harder, doesn't it? You can't really do it. Try as you may, scramble as you may at the end. You can't keep all of those balloons under the water. You cannot suppress it. Have you guys ever seen, um, been to a lake where they have what they call a blob? It's a gigantic inflatable that, you know, someone will sit on the end of it, someone else will jump, and then the person flies like 20 feet up in the air. Well, that's really more what, what it's like. You know, you're on top of that thing and you're trying to press it under the water. It ain't happening. It cannot be done. And that's it, as silly as that may be of an illustration. The truth is it's silly when you think that you can suppress the truth of God. When you think somehow you can stuff it down, reject it, ignore it, mock it. But that's what humans do by nature. That is what is in the heart of men and women apart from Christ. They don't want to believe in a God. They don't want to have to be accountable to a God. So they want to just reject it altogether and act as though he doesn't even exist. And we see that in the world that we live, do we not? The scriptures are so relevant. You know, thousands of years ago, and it is something that really describes the day in which we live in the heart of men and women. Well, we're told that they're going to be judged for that. They're going to be without excuse because what could be known of God is manifest in them. They saw it through God's creation. We call this general revelation. There are things in creation that mankind can see and realize there must be a God. When you look at creation, you realize what? There has to be a creator, first and foremost, right? But what, el what else do we, do we take away from that? God must be, the creator must be eternal. He must be outside of time because he had to pre-exist creation. So we have an eternal creator. What else can we know? This creator must be very powerful. 
He must be all-powerful in order to create something like this. What else can we tell? We can tell that he has creative genius. When you look at the, just the, the, the creative powers of what exists in the world and God's creation, it's amazing. That is creative genius. We also see that he is a God of order. When you see how orderly everything is in just the human body alone, but then in creation itself. So there are so many of these things that we can see about God in creation. And God said, therefore, they are without excuse because the Bible also says that eternity is in the heart of man. I mean, there's something in us that knows that this is not all there is. There is more to life than this. But sinful men and women have sought to reject that altogether and to suppress it, as it were. They had sufficient light and they rejected it. So what does God do in a situation like that? God will give people over to that. He'll let you have your way. And that is, I would submit to you, one of the worst judgments of God is that God will eventually say, okay, you want it, you got it. And then he'll let people go to that thing for which they, they desperately sought in place of God. And so that's what we, we see here in verse 21. Still in chapter 1, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we're told even though they had this knowledge of God, even though they knew God, what did they do? They rejected that. They did not glorify God and catch this, nor were they thankful so that's what God desires from us. That's what God desires from his creation, that we would glorify him, that we would honor him, that we would respect him, and that we would thank him because he truly has blessed us. God has been so very good to his creation. And God seeks to be honored and thanked. And, you know, oftentimes we don't do that, do we? Talking about Christians, how often do we really stop to honor God and to glorify him daily for the things? When's the last time you thank God that you had running water in your house? I mean, seriously, there are so many things that we ought to honor God for on a daily basis and thank him for, not least of which the glorious salvation that he has provided in his son and to adore him, to thank him, to be a people of gratitude well, these folks here, which Paul described, they did not do that. They rejected God. They did not glorify God. They did not thank God. And so we are told that God gave them up. In their foolish hearts, they were darkened. Now, whenever you see the word fool in the Bible, it's not usually fool in the way that we understand it. We think of someone as a fool maybe intellectually or they're, they're you know, dumb, right, is kind of the, the idea. But biblically, it's someone who rejects the knowledge of God. That is a fool. And in Psalms, it says the fool has said in his heart, what? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So that's a biblical fool. And that's what we're talking about here. The foolish people, their hearts were darkened. It is progressive and God will give you over to it and your hearts will grow harder and harder and they will be darkened. And that's exactly what is happening here. And as this happens, as they're deteriorating, as it were, as they are eroding, they are exchanging what is incorruptible, what is glorious, for that which is corruptible. Instead of worshiping the, the one holy God, what are they worshiping? These grotesque images, these idols, these vain things, things that look like humans or bugs or animals. Sounds ridiculous to us, doesn't it? But honestly, we're guilty of the same thing. Oftentimes, those, uh, those, those statues or figurines that these people would worship, they represented something else. They represented prosperity. They, 
represented agricultural prosperity or fertility or whatever it may be, and that's the essence of it. And so we may not bow down to wooden statues and creeping things, but it's in our hearts to worship other things, to worship lesser things, to replace the glory of God with lesser things. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, always producing new idols, always producing idols. And so this is the condition of, of uh, these people here, and we're told they would worship the, the creation rather than the creator. They would worship lesser things. And so God would give them up to their vile passions and he would let them have their way. It's the worst thing that, that God could do. And that's exactly what he does. So let me just say at this point that uh, that's probably the most time I'll spend in any one chapter, but I'm just kind of setting the foundation here. We have to understand from where God has, has brought us, from where God has delivered us, and what's really in the hearts of sinful men and women. And so now we get into chapter 2. Now he's going to flip the coin. So you had the, the pagan worshiper. Oftentimes we can, look, we can find somebody worse than ourselves, right? We're good at that. Well, I'm not like that person. I'm not like those people. And there are plenty of people I would submit to you in the world and in the church who have that struggle. I'm not like those people. Well, Paul already has that in mind. He realizes that there are going to be those people that are going to rise up and they're going to look at those other people and they're going to say, I'm not like them. And so that brings us to chapter 2. And I've titled chapter 2, The Older Brother. And if you're familiar with the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, how many of you know that story? Well, there's two sons. There's the older brother who was a good, the good child. He didn't do the things that the prodigal son did. And when the son came back and cried out for mercy from the father, the older brother was angry. He didn't want God, uh, the father to give mercy to, to the younger brother. And he said, I've never done any of those things. I've always done what is right. Where's my reward? And that was his attitude. Well, Paul, I think, has that, that person in mind here. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So this person justifies himself and judges another. This person looks at, at those pagan idolaters and says, a bunch of sinners, glad I'm not like them. And then Paul says, do you realize that you cast judgment on another person and you're guilty? You're just as guilty. You do the same thing. It may not look exactly the same, but the essence, it's all there. It's all there. This person has the ability to assess the sins of others, but to minimize his own, right? Our sins look really bad on other people. You know, that's, that's kind of what it amounts to. But not me. I mean, I need mercy. God, give me mercy. But that person, let them have it, Lord. I mean, that's, that's in the heart of the hypocritical person. And this is who Paul is speaking to now. This person may not have been a pagan idolater, but they're just as guilty, for they are idolaters of the heart. Paul says that they too will be judged. In verse 4, it says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here this obstinate, self-righteous person despises the goodness of God. That is to say, they disregard it. They set it aside. I don't need it. God, I'm good. I'm not like that person over there. And they despise God's goodness and his forbearance and his kindness. But this was the very thing that's meant to lead people to faith in Christ. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Amen? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God has been so very kind to us, has he not? You know, sometimes I think I talk a lot about the sinfulness of mankind and 
talk a lot about, you know, God's righteousness and his judgment. And those things are so important. But, you know, I hope I don't neglect the love of God and the kindness of God because that ultimately is what brings a, a person to God. There is certainly a recognition of our own sinful condition and our separation from God, but it's the love of God and the kindness of God that draws us in. And God truly is loving, so very loving, loving in a way that we'll never understand the depths of this love. It's a love that we can never match. It's a love that never ends, it never stops, it never stops giving, it never fails, it never gives up on us. It will never forsake or abandon us. Amen? It is the unsearchable love of God poured out on us through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that, that this person disregards that, that they, they set it aside, they despise it. And he says, therefore, God's wrath is also being stored up for them on that day. And so you have two extreme ends of the, of the spectrum here. You've got the person who's a sinner, and they know it. They are as, as low as it goes, but then you've got this other person who's just as bad in God's eyes, and they don't know it. They think they're okay. And I think in some ways God despises that more than the person who is full on out there and knows it because this person is just as bad, yet they think they don't need God. They don't need God's kindness and goodness, that they are good, that God owes them something. It's a very dangerous, a very bad place to be. And so now in chapter 3, Paul's just going to go ahead and wrap it up. Everyone's guilty. The pagan idolater, the religious hypocrite, and everyone in between. The whole world is guilty. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable, for there is none who does good, no, not one. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul says there is none righteous. How many? No, not one. Exactly. And, you know, this is not to say that, that people are not capable of, of doing good or, or being good, looking good. I mean, we, we see people around us that do good things, do we not, in the world who don't know God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the idea is nobody can be pleasing in a saving way to God. Nobody can be so good that God sees that person and says, you know what, that person, they're all right. No, nobody is righteous in God's eyes. Nobody is righteous outside of Christ in a saving way. He says that no one seeks after God, and they have all turned aside. And that's, that's what we do. We seek our own. We don't seek the things of God. We seek our own. And Paul talks about Timothy and Philippians. He says, you know, I'm sending Timothy to you because I don't have anyone like him. Everybody else seeks their own, not the things of Christ. But you know, Timothy, how he has served with me faithfully as a son does his father in the gospel. And so the condition of humanity is that we don't seek God. We suppress the truth of God and we seek our own. He says, there is no one who does good, no, not one. And again, this is similar to the, to the righteous. There are people who do good things. But again, it's not good to the extent that God is satisfied. We cannot, we just cannot measure up. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do good enough because everything that we do is sin-tainted on some level. So when I talk about the depravity of, of mankind, the, the depraved nature, that doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they can possibly be. That's not what is intended to be communicated. The idea is, is that really every, every area of our lives, every part of our person is on some level tainted with sin. And, and all we can really give God is filthy rags. We try to present to God some kind of righteousness or goodness. That's all we can ultimately give him. That's how God sees it. Because there are none righteous, no, not one in God's eyes. There are none good. There are none that seek after God. They all seek their own. We're told there is no fear of God. That is, there's no respect. There's no respect, there's no trust, there's no dependence, there's no gratitude, and that is the condition. 
This is why, listen to me, this is why it takes the power of God unto salvation. Back to verse 16, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why, because on this spectrum, from one end to the other and everywhere in between, it takes the power of God to bring that sinner to life in Christ. Amen? And that was Paul's confidence. That was his only confidence. And that's exactly what it takes to bring salvation, to bring good news, to bring hope. And so in chapter 3, verse 24, we are now introduced to this good news, this hope. Verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we can be declared innocent, guiltless before God. That's what it means to be justified. It's, it's a positional thing. It's an instant thing. It's not something that we grow in. It's not something that we become more of or less of. It happens in a moment in time. We are justified freely through faith in Christ when we trust the finished work of Jesus at the cross and the resurrection from the dead in our place and we surrender to him by faith. We are justified. Now, look, this is good news, guys. This is great news, and I think that we take it for granted. I think we, we yawn a little bit when we hear this. But there are a lot of other religions in this world that they don't have this. They're not justified by faith. They have to work their way into heaven, and they'll never know if they've been good enough to make it. They can't have assurance. They can't have true hope. They can't have that confidence that we have because God has gifted us salvation in his son through faith by believing unto salvation. Amen? That's fantastic news. And we're told that it's through the redemption of Christ. That is to say that Jesus paid the price. Jesus redeemed us. We were slaves of sin. We were lost. And Jesus purchased us out of that by his blood on the cross. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus gave his life for us, lost and wretched sinners. We're told whom God set forth as a propitiation. It's a Bible word. It's probably something that we don't use in, in modern language typically, but the idea there is it's a satisfaction of God's righteous requirements. God has requirements that we cannot meet, we have not met, and therefore we could not truly satisfy. But Jesus, who is perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly just in every single way, he satisfied God's righteous requirements. And then he took our penalty upon himself. He didn't owe that debt. We owed that debt. But Jesus graciously took it upon himself on the cross, and his perfect righteousness was given to us by faith. That is the gospel. And so that happened. God set him forth as a propitiation, and we're told in forbearance, he passed over sins previously committed. That is to say, God did not judge us when he could have. You know, the, the patience of God, I've heard it said, is that God doesn't give us what we immediately deserve. We should have all been killed and cast into hell years ago, but God didn't do that. God did forbear. He did pass over sin so that at a certain point in time, he could become both the just and justifier of the guilty. That is to say that God is truly just because sin has been punished. He didn't just pardon sin and say, I'm feeling good today. I'm going to let that go. No, sin was punished at the cross. But at the same time, for that reason, God could give pardon to guilty sinners because our sins were paid for through Christ. So that makes God both just and the justifier. And that can only happen at the cross. And that is God's marvelous majestic, transcendent wisdom. Amen? Amen? Only at the cross. And that is the good news. And that leads us into chapter 4, where we talk about this justification. 
This being declared innocent through faith. And that's simply what it means. When we say we are justified, it's kind of like saying just as though I had never sinned. Just as though I were perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, made innocent through Christ. And so Paul is now going to point to Abraham and David as a perfect example of this from the Old Testament. So Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Paul says, what is it exactly that Abraham accomplished through outward works or deeds or actions? He said what Abraham received from God was because of his belief and trust in God, not because of some works of righteousness that he did in and of himself. Now we know Abraham was a man that God called in Genesis 12 out of pagan idolatry. He didn't know God, but God called him out graciously and he sent him out. And he said, go to a place where I'm going to show you. Abraham left much of his family. He went. He didn't even know where he was going. That was believing in God. That was trusting God. He obeyed God in radical ways. God told him that he was going to have a child, a miraculous child in his old age. He trusted God. That was accounted to him for righteousness. When he had this, this miracle child... God told him, I want you to take this child and I want you to sacrifice your one and only child. That seems very strange to us. And Abraham was going to do it. And then he was stopped. But he had demonstrated that he would take God at his word and he would do whatever God told him to do because he believed God. He believed and trusted God by faith and we're told, therefore, that it was accounted to him as righteousness. Righteousness was accredited to his account. And that's what we're talking about here. And the Bible goes so far as to even say that Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And all of this because he trusted and believed God. And that's the point that Paul is making. It's not by some works. It's not by his goodness. It's because he trusted and believed God at his word. And so we're told that this is not something that we should try to work for. Verse 4 says, To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. This is hard for us. we like, we got to work for things, right? I mean, that's just how our society is set up, and rightfully so. And so it's hard for us to understand how something like this could just be a free gift. We, we struggle with that, man. We have to work for it. But we're told here that if you want to work for it, you're actually going to be indebted to God. Because if you put yourself under a system of works, then you're going to come up short in the end because you can't measure up. So if you say, God, I'm going to, you know, thank you for the grace, but I'm just going to actually try to be a good person here. God says, you do that, you're going to be in debt. You're going to be indebted to me. But if you'll fall on God's mercy, if you'll cry out for his grace, if you'll recognize you cannot work, that your works are not working, then God will give you his free gift of grace and mercy. And now he's going to kind of go to the other side of the equation with David. In verse 5, he says this, But to him who does not work, uh, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom shall not impute, uh, whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So the one who trusts God instead of working for it will also be counted righteous. Now Paul is quoting from Psalm 32 here, and David is is this is after his experience with Bathsheba, that sin that that he committed, that that heinous atrocity, and God confronted him through the prophet Nathan. And then he, he confessed his sin and he repented of it. And God forgave him. God forgave him. And he said, blessed is the man whom God does not count his sin against him. Blessed is the man whom God forgives, whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And so what we have here is two sides of the same coin. 
One guy, God gave him something that he really didn't deserve. He gave Abraham righteousness. He gave Abraham this, this gift. And then you have the other guy who deserved punishment, and God did not give him punishment. He gave him mercy. And so when we talk about grace and mercy, this is what we're talking about right here. When God gives us grace, God is giving us a gift that we really don't deserve. When God gives us mercy, he is withholding from us what we really do deserve, punishment. And so those two are married together, grace and mercy, and Abraham and David are an example of that very thing from the Old Testament. And that is what is ours in justification when we are declared righteous. Well, this brings us into chapter 5. Chapter 5, this is reconciliation. We're reconciled to God. This is a restoration of relationship. God, man and God's relationship have been broken in the garden, and God has been working towards total restoration in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, when, when God and man would come back into right relationship. And that is what has happened. So as a result of justification, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, therefore, in light of everything that we've already read up to this point, in light of this justification that is ours through faith, we have peace. We have peace. We have peace with God. No longer enemies. No longer separated. No longer this, this chasm between us and the Father that could not be, could not be traveled. We are now one with God in Christ, and we are at peace with Him. That is great news. I remember, I remember a time when I didn't have that peace. I remember when God was not a father to me. I remember when God was a righteous judge that was rightly angry with me because of my sin and my rebelliousness and my rejection and my suppression of the truth of him. But when I put my trust in Christ and was justified in him through faith, God became my father and now I'm at peace with him, no longer at war, no longer at enmity with him. I have peace with God, and because of that, I have peace in God. I have the peace of God. I have that peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that human explanation cannot explain, the peace that comes only from being right with your Creator, being right with God, your Father. And we have that in Him. And we're told we have access into this grace. That's what God has done. God gives us access to him. It was closed off. The heavens were closed. It's like the heavens were brass. And our words would go up to the heavens and hit that brass wall and fall back down to the ground. But God has given us access. God made a way when there was no way. We all know about the veil, the veil that separated the, the, the very holiest of places in the temple in order to go into God's presence, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make sacrifice for the sins of the nation. One day out of the year, through this incredibly thick drape that, that hung there in the doorway. And when Jesus was on the cross and everything went dark and the world began to quake, that veil tore and it split in two. And that is to say that access has been granted to all of us. It's not just the high priest who comes into God's presence on our behalf one day out of the year. We now have access into God's presence instantly, instantly through what Christ has done for us. We have access into this grace and we rejoice in hope. That is to say that we have confident expectation of glory, that we are going to stand in God's presence and we are going to worship him in glory. Amen. And so we have peace. We have access. We have hope. Verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were without strength, and that, that, is, that describes us, we were incapable. We had not the ability. We were without strength. In the, in the, the moment in time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then it says, you know, scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Maybe for a good man would someone dare to die. You know, it's kind of hard to make a distinction between a righteous person and a good person, wouldn't you say? I have heard it said that you can be right and not necessarily be good. That you can be right and be obnoxious. I think that maybe that, that makes a little more sense. But here's the thing. We were neither one. We were not righteous or good, and Christ died for us in that state. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves when we least deserved it. When mankind least deserved the goodness of God, he poured out his goodness in his son Jesus at the cross for us sinners, for us rebels. So then verse 9 says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So God has reconciled us to himself and his son. Now, God paid such a high price when we were enemies. If God was willing to do that to reconcile us to himself, how much more is God for us now? that we have been reconciled, that we have been pardoned, that we are new in Christ and that we belong to him. If God was for us then, if God was willing to do that for us then, how much more is God for us now? Do you ever think about that? God is for you. God is for you. God loves you. The Bible says that God dances over, he rejoices over us, is what it says literally. Do you, do you think like that? Do you think God rejoices over you? I mean, that's a struggle for me. I know it's true, but it, it's hard for me inwardly to live that way. And I have to remind myself, you know what? God has demonstrated love towards me in a way that, that the human mind really just cannot comprehend. God paid the highest price. God loves me. God loves you. God is pleased with you if you are in Christ. Your life is like a pleasing aroma that rises to the heavens, and God delights in it. You know, I was reading in Malachi the other day. It's really an interesting verse. God's talking about how the people were essentially saying of God, what's the point? What's the point in serving God? There's no benefit. There's no profit. And you look at how the wicked, how the wicked thrive, and you could understand that God would take that very offensively. But then there were these other people that are mentioned in Malachi, and it says that they came together and they feared the Lord, and they spoke together about God, and God took note of it. And it says that it was written in a book of remembrance before the Lord. God delights in his people. God takes note of the people that love him and that serve him and that talk to each other about him. And a book of remembrance was written there in Malachi for that very thing. Isn't that amazing? We can please God. Have you ever known somebody that you couldn't please no matter what? Try as you may. They can't be pleased. Know anybody like that? Conversely, have you ever been in a situation where you were going to do something for somebody and you just knew they were going to love it? And it was like you were more excited than probably they were even going to be. But you were excited. You couldn't wait for them to see this because you knew how thrilled, how blessed they would be. I think that's the way that it is for God. God can be pleased. God can be pleased. God rejoices over us in our reconciliation with him because of the justification that we have in Christ Jesus. And when we love God and worship God and learn of God and serve God and share God and talk about God, God is delighted in that. It pleases the heart of our Father because we have been reconciled and because we are at peace with him. Amen? That brings us into chapter 6. Chapter 6. This is our fourth point. This is living the risen life. Okay, so we were sinful by nature. 
God rescued us, delivered us out of that. God justified us, made us right before him positionally. We have been reconciled with God, brought into a right relationship with him, relationship restored. And now we must live godly lives. We want to live lives that match that. And this is something that we do grow in. I've talked about how, how justification never changes. It's fixed. It is once and for all the same. But this is sanctification, and that is the process by which we are growing more and more into the image of Christ, that we are looking less like the old man, the old woman, and we are looking more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is called sanctification. That is what I will call living the risen life. And so chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So since we have been justified and reconciled to God, we are to live godly lives. We are to pursue godliness, and we are to work hard at it. We are to take it very seriously. This is a matter of identity. This is who we are in Christ. We have been baptized into his death. That means we have been immersed. We have gone all the way under. We have gone down into the grave, and then we have come up into the newness of life as spirit-filled, born-again believers. We have died with Christ. We have been crucified with him. It is no longer Christ who, or I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is true for me. That is true for you. That is called the new life, the risen life. We are to walk like that. We are to live lives worthy of the gospel. We are to look like what we profess to be. Now, these people here that Paul is speaking of, he's, he's kind of expecting someone to say, well, hey, God's grace is being poured out on me abundantly, and so the more I sin, that's just more grace. So why don't I just sin all that I want to? And Paul says, absolutely not. Do you not understand that you have died with Christ, that you've been buried with him, and that you've risen again into the newness of life? You don't live to sin. You've died to sin, and you live to Christ for the glory of the Father, and you walk in the newness of life. And this word walk, it's used frequently in the New Testament. It's simply how we live our lives, how we carry ourselves day to day. Some days we feel like walking like Christ, don't we? And some days we don't. But we're supposed to keep putting one foot in front of the other anyways. And that's probably the best piece of advice I could give anybody. It's, it's something that has helped me is just put one foot in front of the other. Just keep moving forward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. And do not go back. Do not go back. Keep putting one foot in front of the other, whether you feel like it or not. Walk as Christ walked. Live as Christ lived. For our identity is in him. And we are new. We are in Christ. Amen? Amen? And so, verse 12 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we're not allowed to, uh, we're not to allow sin to what? Reign. We're not to allow sin to reign in our bodies. That is to say, it is not to master us. Sin is not to be on the throne of our hearts. Christ is to be on the throne of our hearts. He is Lord. He is King. And we are not to present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. We are to present ourselves to God as alive from the dead. That is to say, we are standing at attention before God and we are saying, God, here I am. You have all of me. You have my heart, my mind, my body, my speech. You have it all. I am presenting myself to you. I am at your service. That's what it means to present yourself to God as alive from the dead and as an instrument of righteousness. We've been an instrument of wickedness for far too long, have we not? And the Bible says that we are to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. Our bodies belong to Him. In verse 15, 
of chapter 6. It says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve something. That much is for sure. And that is an unescapable truth. We're going to serve sin or we're going to serve righteousness. He says, but praise God that you have given yourself to that form of doctrine. That is to say, you believe the gospel. You gave yourself to the gospel truth. And you have been delivered from being slaves to sin. And now you have become slaves of righteousness from the heart. That is to say that we are slaves to that which is right. Maybe you noticed not long after you became a Christian that when you tried to do those things you used to do, it wasn't the same. That you couldn't really do that anymore. Try as you may. That's what it is to be a slave to that which is right. Or maybe you did something as a Christian and then all of a sudden you realize, oh man, like I, I'm convicted and I have to go tell the person that I did that because I cannot, I can't, until I confess that and make that right, it's driving me crazy, right? You ever been there? You experienced that? That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness, a slave to that which is right. You belong to God now and God is going to see to it that you do the right thing. You can't live like you used to live. You were free to do those things back then, the things in which you are now ashamed. But what fruit were in those things, Paul says? But now we are slaves to that which is right. We belong to Jesus. We answer to him. And he's going to see to it by his spirit that we do that. Well, this brings us into chapter 7. And this is our last chapter here. And I titled this, The Battle for Holiness is Joined. And by that, what I mean, I'm sure you've seen some action movie like Lord of the Rings or something where there's just a, a countless, you know, thousands and thousands of people on one side, the enemy army, and then countless thousands and thousands of the, the righteous army, and they're running towards one another, and then they, they clash, and, and you see the, the crowd become one. That is, the battle is joined. And that's essentially what has happened when we come into faith with Christ and we're born again, we have an enemy and it's called me, you. It's the flesh. And, you know, I am new in Christ. I'm alive in him, but I still struggle against this flesh, this flesh that wants to do what it wants to do. And what it wants to do is contrary to God. And Galatians 5 says that very thing. And so that is the battle that is before us here in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. So basically what he's saying here is God's law is good and I am not. I mean, how many of us can say amen to that? God is good, I am not. Man, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh profits nothing. And so the debate here is, is this Paul talking about before his conversion or after his conversion? Is this Paul describing himself when he was outside of Christ? Or is this Paul describing this battle that exists now that he is in Christ? And good arguments can be made for both sides. But I think it's very clear that Paul is speaking as someone who is now new because, hey, look, before Christ, there was no battle. There was no battle for me. Was there a battle for you? I wanted to do that which was wrong, and I had no reservation about it. And I just went for it. And when I came into faith, came to faith in Christ, now there was a battle there. There was something going on. And let me just say to you, that, that is a great sign, man. If you are struggling with sin, I think we tend to really beat ourselves up because of that sin but if you're struggling, praise God, that is a great sign because there's something in you that desires something better, something different, that desires God and his will. And that's the battle that is joined, you know, because Paul says, I want to do that which is right, 
That's what tells me that Paul is alive in Christ. There's something in him that wants to do right, but there's something warring against that desire to do which is right, and he ends up doing the thing that he hates. Verse 16, he says, If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's a mouthful right there. That's easy to get confused. But all he's simply saying is, I want to do what's right, but I keep doing what is wrong. What is wrong with me? So there's something in me. I find this principle. I find this law. It's that evil is present with me. The desire to do good is present, but the ability to do it is absent. And so if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can relate with this. It didn't take long for me to start figuring this one out. Man, when I first came to Christ and I was just changing, I was like, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden I just had this, I mean, I remember the first time I just really blew it as a Christian. And I thought, oh, man, that guy's still there. That struggle's still there. I thought that was gone. And then the battle was joined, and I, I began to, to realize that this is, this is so true for the Christian. He said, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. Uh, excuse me, verse 21. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Then there's verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says, evil is present with me. I delight in the law and the inward man. That's what makes me believe that Paul is a believer here because he says he delights in God's law and his inward man. But evil is present with him. There is a battle between the flesh and our delight in God and in his law. And then he says this, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. Have you ever felt that way? Oh, wretched woman that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Let me just read this commentary to you. I have told you this before, but I'm going to read the commentary so you know I'm not just making this up. MacArthur says that tradition says that an ancient tribe near Tarsus tied the corpse of a murder victim to its murderer allowing its spreading decay to solely infect and execute the murderer, right? So basically this body of death, they believe that this is Paul alluding to this form of capital punishment there in Tarsus where if someone killed someone, they would take the body and strap it to the person that killed them. And as that body decays, they will begin to decay while still alive and then eventually die from it. Now, that's horrific, is it not? Frankly, I can't think of a better way to describe sin. I mean, if that don't describe sin, I don't know what does. And so Paul felt the weight of that. He said, who is going to deliver me from this body of death that is strapped to me and I feel like I'm being eaten alive? And he rejoiced in who? Jesus Christ. His deliverance came from who? Jesus Christ, absolutely. And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord because Paul had been delivered, was being delivered, and knew that one day he would be finally delivered for good. And so he rejoiced in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will deliver us from this body of death, finally. And we praise God and we look forward to that day. And so we'll, we'll close here. But in chapter 8, picking up next week, he goes right into our union with Christ, that we are one with him, that Christ is in us. And so he says, here is the answer. It is Jesus Christ. And he begins to talk about the union that is ours with him. Amen? And that is the hope of the Christian, and we praise God for that. So we'll go ahead and close here, and let me pray for us. May I? Father God, we love you, and we thank you for this glorious truth that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this beautiful book, the book of Romans that historically has changed so many people's lives. We have this treasure, God, for ourselves. You have delivered your word, preserved it. You've given us your Holy Spirit and that we can know this truth and be set free 
because of it. And so I, I just pray for all of us in this room and all of those who are at home watching. God, would you please cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Would you, Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and baptize us in him? God, would you cause us to walk in that joy and that delight that you have for us? Would you cause us to really live under the reality of your rejoicing over us, over, uh, under the, the pleasure, God, that you have towards us, your people? May we know that peace, Lord, that peace that Romans 5 says that we have in you and through you. God, there are so many needs present in this room right now. There are hurts. There are losses. There are financial strains and stresses. There is physical pain. There is relational detriment and loss. On and on and on, God, there is fear. There is anxiety. Lord, I pray that you would wash all of that away. I pray that you would give your people joy, that you would give them love. Lord, I pray that you would give us you, Lord. We want more of you, less of us, God, more of you. Help us, Father. Help us to, to walk in your light and to grow in godliness and to give you all of ourselves and everything that we have and to hold nothing back. God, may we be Christians. May we be men and women of God who love you and have given ourselves to you entirely. If there's anyone in this room or at home watching who hasn't, hasn't trusted you, God, who hasn't come to you and put their faith in Jesus for salvation, I pray that today would be the day. God, would you move in their hearts? Would you grant them repentance? Would you open their eyes, God? Would you give them faith? May they call upon the name of Jesus and be saved and be delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. May they be born again of you, Father. May they be born of the Spirit, alive forevermore, growing in godliness and looking to you. God, would you please bless your church, for without your blessing, God, we have nothing. God, would you keep your church, because if, we are, if you don't keep us, Lord, we won't be kept. God, would you provide for our every need, and you know our needs more than we know our needs. God, we love you. We look to you. We trust you, and we bless your holy name. We worship you. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all, and I hope to see you on Wednesday night. We're going to continue trucking through the book of 1 Samuel. So we'll see you then. And love you guys.